The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Gotta get ready. Gotta get ready. Yeah, gotta get pumped. Gotta get ready. Gotta get ready. Yeah, you gotta get mad. (laughs) You gotta get angry. (laughs) You gotta think about things that make you mad. Oh, why didn't people believe in that talking mongoose? Oh, like, why did ABC cancel the chew? Why did Elmira join picking the brain? <laughs> or or when you wait for the bathroom for a long time and then it turns out no one was in it all the whole time? Ah, I'm so mad! <laughs> I'm ready. We're fucking ready to record. Yes. No dogs in space. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And we're on to the Ramones part three. Yeah. And when we last left the Ramones, they had just played England for the first time on the occasion of America's Bicentennial and they found that what was a decidedly hard sell in America, i.e. punk rock, that shit was being bought by the boatload in the UK. But the thing about the Ramones is that they never stopped believing in themselves and their potential to become rock superstars here in America. So they got to work on recording their second album upon their return. Now what astute listeners may have noticed in episode 1 and 2 is that some of the songs that the Ramones wrote before their debut actually ended up on their second album if not third album, and there's good reason for that. See, when the Ramones signed to Sire Records, they had no less than 30 songs written and ready to go. So when it came time to lay down another 14 for their second album, Leave Home, the Ramones were more than ready. I 
One of the first of many Ramon songs about mental health. Yes. <laughs> and that's good. It's great. Yes. No, no, no. They got it out. They had a lot of problems, and they definitely explored those fucking issues. <laughs> <laughs> we have a few lyrics here and there. Yeah, here and there. Yeah, they recorded Leave Home October 1976. And remember, this is around the time where a lot of the major punk bands are still in rehearsals. They absolutely are. I mean, the the Dam's first album didn't come out until February of 1977. Yeah. So the the Ramones were so far ahead of everybody else in the game. Yeah, and they're on their second album already. <laughs> yeah. Leave Home. So this is the album that Tony Bon Jovi produced. Tony Bon Jovi, that would be the cousin of John Bon Jovi. Yes. <laughs> From the New Jersey Bon Jovis. Of course. And oh, what a storied family they are. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, uh, Tony Bon Jovi also brought in Ed Stasium to do the sound engineering, who would turn out to be the one of the major guys who would work with the Ramones for the next few decades. Yeah, if you've bought a Ramones reissue in the last 20 years, then you know the words Ed Stasium mix really fucking well. Yes. Yeah, Ed Stasium's a huge figure in the Ramones. Yes, and also a lifelong friend. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he's coming in in and out all the time, especially during the recording studio. So they meet Ed, they meet Tony. Tony's just like waves and like looks at his watch and is like, yeah, yeah, everything sounds good. It just <laughs> kind of disappears. Yeah. And it's all up to Tommy and Ed to pretty much produce the whole album. And the album sounds fucking great. Yes. And it was so fast to record. I mean, the track, the basic tracks only took like, what, three days? Mm -hmm. Just a few overdubs. I mean, they already came in rehearsed. They were already ready. As you said before, before they even signed, they had a bunch of songs anyways. And the fact that they were already making like an album with 14 songs. Yes, granted, they were about two minutes long. <laughs> I, I think this album clocks in at 32 minutes, somewhere around there. It's a, no, no. I don't think there's any Ramones album that makes it to 40. <laughs> <laughs> no, it takes a while. Yeah. But you know, by then Joey was so good at his vocals, like he could actually like, re like double his track uh, with his voice and do it all the same nuances and everything. So with Joey, it was just in and out. It was perfect. He was a natural, you know, like, yeah. uh, like he was an absolute natural at uh, at being a, you know, a, a pop vocalist because that's what Joey Ramone saw himself as. Like he didn't see himself like as a punk vocalist. And that's the, the funny thing about the Ramones. I was watching an interview with them from like 1981, I think. Uh, and this is something that a lot of these early punk bands say over and over again. Like when someone when an interviewer mentions the word punk, they bristle. <laughs> They're like, uh, okay, fine. <laughs> like, uh, all right, because these guys don't see themselves as I'm in a punk band. They see themselves as I'm in a rock and roll band. Yeah. And that's the way the Ramones always thought of themselves. The whole punk thing, all that shit, like the, the originators all bristled at the word punk. They thought it was cringy. Yeah, but I mean, I guess eventually they do come to embrace that when they're like, oh, there's money involved <laughs> for all our hard work and just you know scrimping and getting by yeah yeah sure okay we're punk yeah, yeah I'll, whatever i'll call you whatever the fuck i'll be I'll, I'll fucking go go buy fucking blue 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 whatever i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i don't fucking I don't give a shit just let me eat <laughs> a leave home was also vitally important to the history of the ramones because it finally gave them the iconography that would make them one of the most popular merch bands in history next to the misfits that's because Leave Home was the first album that carried the Ramones' seal. 
course, the Ramon seal, if you've never seen it before, it is uh, an eagle. It's kind of based on the presidential seal, uh, and it's got, you know, the names of all the band members around that eagle. And, it, it, of course, it says Ramon It looks fucking great. It's iconic. Uh, and, of course, it was uh, designed by the aforementioned Arturo Vega. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did come up with the whole idea because he saw the presidential seal when he was on the road with the Ramones and they stopped by in D.C. and he saw that. He's like, this is amazing. This is powerful. This is aggressive. This is American. And that's what the Ramones are. Yeah, I mean, because remember Arturo Vega is from Mexico. Is he from Mexico City? Uh, well, he was from Chihuahua, remember? who went? He, then he moved to Mexico City. Right. And then eventually to New York. Of course. But, you know, but Arturo Vega was an outsider, you know, as far as it, as far as American culture came. Like, he was on the outside looking in. And for him, like, the Ramones were everything that he wanted America to be. Like, he that this when he thought of America, he thought of rock and roll, and he thought of definitely the Ramones. So he wanted to encapsulate that in something that just screamed, America! <laughs> it does. It, it really does. does. Especially with the eagle on there and the holding the baseball bat. Yeah. And uh, then the other one is like the branch with the apples on it. Oh, they were red at first and then they changed it because Joey kept being like, why do you got tomatoes on there? <laughs> like, it's apple apple pie. It's Americans. You know what? You're right. It's we should right. get rid of the tomatoes. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. But yeah, this is all Arturo Vega kind of developing it over time. You could see on the, uh, on the back of the debut album, there is an, an eagle in the back. Mm-hmm. And then... Then eventually transforms into the presidential seal that we all know and love. I mean, I got a Ramon shirt. Of course. And speaking of t-shirts, although Arturo Vega, you know, he made a lot of artwork for the Ramones, like banners, and he was doing the lights for the shows, but he was still working as a busboy just to make ends meet, you know, starving artist kind of thing. Of course, yeah, starving artist, new immigrant to uh, the city. Yeah, like Arturo Vega, he is, he is living the fucking dream. Yes. <laughs> and that's why he thought of, like, making t-shirts to sell. You know, like printing them like in his loft. So he goes to the Ramones. He's like, we should sell T-shirts and then we can all make some money. And the Ramones are like, what do you mean? You, you want us to sell clothes during our show? <laughs> and Arturo's like, no, no, I mean Ramon shirts. You know, and the guys are like, why would anyone want to wear a shirt that says Ramones on it? <laughs> why? Why? Yeah. I mean, Arturo Vega created the idea of merch. He was the first guy to do that. There were, like, some things. I mean, a lot of times you get, like, what, a program? It's like, yeah. welcome to the Rolling Stones concert. Here's your program. <laughs> but, like, Arturo Vega pioneered the idea of DIY merch. Yes. Like, he pioneered the idea of uh, bands printing their own shit, selling their own shit, and using it as a revenue stream. Uh, before that, like, there there were not, you know, the Beatles weren't running around fucking selling Beatles t-shirts. You know, the Rolling Stones weren't really selling Rolling Stones t-shirts. There were probably a couple of Sabbath shirts around. Maybe a couple of fucking Led Zeppelin shirts. But as far as like bands just fucking making their own way and doing their own shit and selling their own shit on the road at shows, like Arturo Vega pioneered that shit. Oh, yeah. And then he took it over from there. Also going on the road with them and doing all the lights. So he was pretty much the Ramones art director. Wasn't or didn't Arturo Vega end up being the wealthiest one out of all of them? Most likely. Yeah. Because yeah. of the merch. Yeah, because of the rights. I mean, because now they have Ramon's uh, shoes, Ramon's lunchboxes, and Ramon's a flamethrower. <laughs> you know, merchandising. 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 <laughs> the kids love it. <laughs> yeah, he fucking got it. But even though the SEAL will provide the Ramones with a much-needed cash flow for decades to come, whether the Ramones understood merch or not, 
it wouldn't be the Ramones if a bit of bad luck didn't come with the good. See, one of the great ironies of Leave Home is that the song that everyone agreed should have been the first single was the only song that couldn't be released as a single. That song was Carbona, Not Glue. And as we mentioned in the last episode, that song took the Ramones close to lawsuit territory. Well, they were in the neighborhood. <laughs> of, I mean, they were more like, the, the record execs were more like afraid of getting a lawsuit because Carbona is a cleaning fluid and also registered trademark. Mm-hmm. It's the name of a company. And also the company, you know, imagine them getting calls and being like, what people are telling uh, the kids to sniff our like product like it's just <laughs> there is no way that they were going to win this one so that's no. why they decided like you know what we're going to take it out after the initial release and then they're going to we're going to add in something else yeah in the UK they got babysitter but here in the United States we got one of the Ramones most recognizable songs Sheena is a punk rocker so good it's the fucking bubble gum yes <laughs> like, it is joey ramone a hundred percent right there yes and if you can hear it if you want to listen to like the very very beginning when you hear oh and then they just start playing the song uh-huh. it's only because they, they were in the recording studio and then the ramones like okay we're ready to play and they just start playing you know when dd always starts to the like, one two three four that's ed stasium is in the the recording booth like shit they already started and he just <laughs> presses Record right at the moment, at the right moment. Thank God. I want. I always wondered why that was just fuck boom. <laughs> I mean, it's great. It it works perfectly. Like it, it just does. it kicks the song off. Uh, but yeah, I always wondered. That's that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, Joey wrote Sheena's a punk rocker in the hospital because uh, he had a foot infection. <laughs> Not very punk rock. He stepped on something and then it just got infected because he didn't clean it. Yeah. Well, Joey Ramone, he was in and out of the hospital his entire life. Yeah. He was not a healthy human being. No. And like we said in the first episode, uh, he just had a lot of physical problems. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, and one of the times that he was in the hospital, this one being the first time, uh, he just you know started writing this, and he started thinking about Sheena from uh, Queen of the Jungle comic book mm-hmm. from back in the day, and he figured like I'm gonna put Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, you know, an orphan who grew up in the jungle and 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 you know had to survive of all these crazy like animals and predators and everything, and I'm gonna put her in New York City. Yeah. Yeah, and then I'm gonna see how she fares with the New York punks. <laughs> It's cool. I mean, it's it's the first song to use the word punk. 
Like it's, it's the first one to really like codify that and be like, yeah, like this is this is the word that we're going to use. This is what we're going to do. Like it, we're going to play around with this a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the song was so good that when Seymour Stein heard it, uh, you know, the owner of Sire Records, when he heard it, uh, yeah, I think like Joey played it for him or something. He's like, you guys have to record this. This is after they're done with Leave Home. Mm-hmm. This is between uh, the second and third album. So they recorded it, released it as a single. And of course, they had to put it in when they took out Carbona Nut Glue. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of ended up being a bit of a middle child of a song, uh, somewhat. But, you know, in the UK, it was almost a hit. Like, it hit number 22 in the UK. It was the highest charting single the Ramones ever had in the UK. Um, but didn't really go further than that. Now, Sheena was not officially on a Ramones album and released as a single in the US until Rocket to Russia. That was their third one. For Leave Home, the first single was Swallow My Pride. <laughs> That was Ed Stasium doing background vocals on that? I do believe so. Oh, that's cool as shit. Oh, yeah. No, that guy could play. He could sing. That's great. Well, I mean, that's a, the thing about Swallow My Pride is a, it's a fucking great song, but like the, it's, it's sad because what the song is about is, you know, they go over to U, the UK, they have that bicentennial show, everyone's treating them like they're fucking gods, and then they come back to the United States, and there's nothing. It's but, like that weekend was a fever dream or something. <laughs> Yeah, because the the album, like in New York City, like the Ramones were revered, but travel five miles in any direction outside of New York and no one cared. Uh, At the very least, like no one cared the way the Ramones wanted them to care because the Ramones always thought this is the one. This is going to be the one that gets us to the top. It just never came. Besides all the original clown. I'm so sad. <laughs> it's, therein lies the tragedy of the Ramones. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, they really did have these lofty aspirations of being like, we have something great. A lot of people tell us. We believe it, too. What, what's going on? <laughs> well, besides all the original classics that were on Leave Home, the Ramones included yet another cover, as they always did. On this album, they did quite possibly the best version ever done of the Riviera Surfy 1964 hit, California Sun. One, two, three, four. We're going out where I belong. 
Joey's recovery from the aforementioned foot infection, the Ramones returned to the stage, and during one particularly hectic night, they ended up playing shows with both Suicide and Blue Oyster Cult. You didn't? No. Yeah, Godzilla. No, that song's great. I fucking love that song. And you'd kind of think that the Ramones would go well with that. Like, you'd think, like, yeah, you know, songs about Godzilla and the Grim Reaper and cities on flame with rock and roll. Okay, so this is really what happened. (laughs) February 4th. I'm going to do it like Sophia. (laughs) Picture it. February 4th, 1977. Uh, so uh, what happened is the Ramones opened for a Blue Oyster Cult at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island, right? And it was the biggest stage they've ever played so far. It was huge, like thousands of people everywhere. They did just okay. Well, I mean, c- considering some of their past experiences at this point in their career, just okay is just fine. Yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, is that the crowd, well, I mean, obviously they were waiting for their headline band, but also, like, they just didn't get it. Yeah. And and that's fine, whatever, because the Ramones would go up and play really quickly anyways. They'll be gone by the time everyone figured out, like, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> Danny, of course, Danny Fields being their manager at the time, just booked the gig just, just because he figured, like, this is great exposure. This is going to expose thousands of people to their music. Well, Danny Fields was of the same opinion that the Ramones were. As, as just All people need to do is hear this. If they hear it, then they'll get it. Yeah. But that didn't always happen with live shows. Because no. I don't, I, at this point, just people, people weren't ready to be surprised by the Ramones. 
Yeah, yeah, and not and not at this stage at least. And uh, after their show, uh, I remember we talked about this in the Suicide series that they had to go to do their next set at CBGB's, and you know from Long Island to CBGB's that is quite a that's like what like an hour and a half ride yeah, maybe at least an hour and a half ride something yeah. like that. And so Suicide goes on to play at CBGB's and they they open and then they get booed <laughs> like we tell in the story. And this is the same night that the Ramones have they've already opened for Blue Oyster cult and done okay and the Ramones and the suicide's just fucking dying at CBGB's <laughs> and then suicide goes you know backstage and they're just like kind of wiping the sweat off and then the booze off them because <laughs> that's the funny thing is that like at the same time that people aren't ready for the Ramones at Blue Oyster Cult people aren't ready for suicide at CBGB's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's all happening simultaneously <laughs> and that's when suicide you know after they were done uh, when Hilly Crystal the owner CBGB's ran backstage is like the Ramones aren't here yet because at this moment the Ramones are looking around being like where did we park <laughs> uh, I think it was over here and then of course getting caught in traffic as a lot of people know happens in New York City mm -hmm. suicide had to go on and play their set again to another roaring amount of booze <laughs> <laughs> and so, and eventually the Ramones, of course, as we told in the story, Ramones finally walked into CBGB's and suicide on stage is like, oh, thank God, <laughs> and quietly exited the stage so the Ramones can actually do an amazing show that night Yeah, for their crowd. For Definitely for their crowd, yeah, because remember, like, that's the thing comparing the suicide story to the Ramones story is that, like, as hard as you've got it, as anyone's got it when it comes to being an artist or when it comes to pretty much anything, as hard as, you, as you've got it, there's always someone that's got it harder. There's yeah. always someone who's trying something even fucking weirder. And uh, the moral of the story is find your people. Absolutely. Following that show, the Ramones returned to Los Angeles to headline the Whiskey A Go-Go with Blondie. And who should come out to the show but one of Joey Ramones' heroes? Songwriter and record producer, Phil Spector. Yes, is Phil Spector a bad person? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that there's no doubt on that. <laughs> but goddamn, he could get some performances. Oh, that's a perfect song. You know, Cher and Sonny Bono sang a backup on that one. No shit, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, and and other people, but they're, they're they're the ones that stuck out the most. Yeah, that's that's the Ronettes uh, and the Wrecking Crew musicians. Yeah, the Wrecking Crew, and, and we'll we'll really get into Phil Spector and Phil Spector's career on uh, on episode four because uh, he is a fascinating character and is responsible for some of the best music of the 20th century. Uh, but Phil Spector was a bad person and a fucking 
weirdo. <laughs> and the Ramones were about to have like their first encounter with this guy. Yeah, that's true. It's when the Ramones went to L.A. and they did five nights at the Whiskey A Go-Go with Blondie. And it was after the first show, Phil Spector just shows up. Wearing a black cape. <laughs> hair Love down his capes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hair down to his shoulders, goatee, you know, all in black. And it, he looked like he was always in costume. Yeah. You know, like and nothing really fit him well. No, never. No, he was like always like kind of in a disguise or something. <laughs> um, like a Barbarella villain. <laughs> He totally dressed like a Barbarella villain. Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and Phil Spector, most importantly, loved Joey. Loved Joey. Yes. He, he heard that voice. Like, he heard the talent in Joey Ramone's voice. Like, he heard that. Because he, he could tell that Joey Ramone was in love with Phil Spector's music. Phil oh, Spector yes. knew I that. With <laughs> <laughs> well, Phil like, Spector? Uh, Phil, no, not with Phil Spector himself. But, but he could hear his own influence in Joey Ramone's voice and he wanted to work with him like he wa- like he wanted yeah. he got a fucking hard on for working with the Ramones uh that would not go down until he finally achieved that goal yeah that's true so this is the first meeting that they have uh it, you know that's when Phil Spector is already being like hi guys shaking a lot of hands and then saying Joey you're a star you're a one in a million <laughs> I love you. I love you. Just showering with compliments. Dee Dee comes back. Yeah, hi. Uh, anyway, Joey, Joey, <laughs> you're great. Uh, I, I, I want to, I want to do, do, do some, make some beautiful music together. Mm-hmm. But at that that point, the guys kind of shake it off. Joey just walks away smiling, and they're just like, "All right, well, we'll, we'll see, we'll see." Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, they, they weren't ready for it quite yet. Uh, they would eventually be ready for it through. Uh, it's hard to say whether it's desperation or if it's an actual yearning to work with Phil Spector, but this was their first experience with the man, uh, the, but it definitely would not be their last. No. So after the encounter with Phil, the Ramones returned to Europe for some semblance of a return to glory. The first time they'd come to the UK, punk was still finding its footing. But when they arrived a year later, the scene had truly come into its own. That's true. I mean, The Clash are already big. Uh, Sex Pistols finally came out with their album, their one album. <laughs> and, you know, the Dan were making some headway there. Like, I mean, th- there was already a big scene. And it, there was already not even just a scene, but it was just almost like a lifestyle, a different life that people were living back then in England. They totally jumped on the bandwagon with that. Yes. And so the Ramones went on a six-week European tour with Talking Heads supporting. Uh, it was like April to June 1977. You know, they, they hit Switzerland. Uh, they tried to do Marseille, but th- there was no power for the app, so it had to be canceled. <laughs> Again, that happened to the dam, too. I know. It's like, <laughs> oh, things are different over here. Uh. Yeah, the outages and, the, and you know, the things. Uh, the, the France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, England, Scotland. They went everywhere. And as far as shows go, uh, the, the some of them were pretty interesting, like the one in Finland where the audience would only applaud politely between songs. <laughs> I guess it might be like a culture thing. It is. And I, I was very, when last podcast went and played Stockholm, I was I was afraid for a year that we would go and play and just get ha ha ha. 
<laughs> no, no, <laughs> they're cool now. No, it ended up being one of my one of my favorite shows of my entire life. It was <laughs> it was fantastic. It, it, it was weird. It was a weird fucking Stockholm uh, theater. It felt like a fucking virgin sacrifice was going to break out any second. It was fucking wonderful. That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, so they go to all these places. They end up in uh, in Stonehenge, or at least they end up going to Stonehenge because, of course, they wanted to do a little bit of touristy stuff. Yeah, some sightseeing when you're in England, of course. So they, you know, they they gather everyone up in the van and then they drive over there and they're like, "Ooh, look at Stonehenge! This is great." Meanwhile, Johnny Ramone is just sitting in the van. He's like, "I'm not getting out." <laughs> I don't want to see a whole bunch of rocks. Well, it's a bunch of fucking rocks. Where you? Where, why? Why are we here? Why? Why am I gonna be sitting here with a bunch of fucking? Let's go get a fucking hamburger. Come on, let's go get a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> Just go, go look at the fucking rocks, Johnny. <laughs> Such a dick. I know. I know. It's so funny in his book that he pretty much explains it the exact same way. He's just like, I just don't want to see a whole bunch of rocks. <laughs> He's like, but I'll talk to you about Space Mountain for like an hour. I love Space Mountain. I've been on it like twenty times. Now that's culture. <laughs> yeah, I can see why Arturo Vega saw capital A America in the Ramones. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and it was very, like, the way they would travel is a lot of times, like, they have to be in the van together. They have to travel together. They had assigned seating because that's the way Johnny liked it. <laughs> he would get upset if someone was sitting in another seat. Like, it had to be kind of a, in, a, in a just regimented way I guess that was part of Johnny Ramone's uh, way of controlling the band he played all of these little mind games with every fucking member like these ways to keep control over them uh, and you know you might say like yeah he's a dickhead for doing that but you might also say that's why the Ramones lasted for over over 20 years right because they finally these... had their father <laughs> Yeah, they had a dad, you know, that Johnny would come in and, you know, it's like we talked about in the last episode, you know, you're, you're late to a show, you find $25, you know, you show up drunk to a show, $25, like, and he would enforce that shit. Yeah. You know, Dee Dee was terrified of Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, he worked hard on that. <laughs> and so as far as all the shows that went on, I mean, they obviously went really well, but looking into all the books and pouring into all of them, uh, there's not a lot about the actual performances because all they like to complain about is like, there's no ice. There's no ice. How come in Europe, you know, the, they, they say they give you a salad and there's no lettuce. Well, what is this arugula? You know, and that's all, they were very difficult. And the management team like Linda Stein, Danny Fields, they just kept sighing all the time, Monty. So, I mean, I, I'm sure the shows went well, except the fact that there was no lettuce. No, no lettuce, no ice. That's all they care. Like, that's the funny thing. That's what jo Johnny care, cared about. It doesn't matter that they love you over here and they fucking hate you in America. And no fucking hamburgers here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, fuck, we can't get no fucking hamburgers. What's the use of being in a country if you can't get a fucking hamburger? Fuck this place. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, that's the thing about the live performances of the Ramones is that those live performances had a method. See, the Ramones believed that the more pissed off they were, the better they played. And it didn't matter what they were pissed off for or who they were pissed off at. Well, most of the time, they were pissed off the easiest and closest target, namely each other. On that second UK tour in particular, Joey and the rest of them were having a nice conversation. This is a story that one of the tour managers told. They were in a nice conversation when Joey started saying, Fucking yeah, man. <laughs> Fucking yeah, man. Fucking yeah, man. Like over and over and over again. Yeah, it works, man. It works. <laughs> and when the band finally got on stage, they were all so fucking annoyed and pissed off at Joey. They played one of the best shows of the tour. 
we're going to have to do that every time. <laughs> but actually, the Ramones have plenty of reasons to be angry. In the UK, like we said before, Sheena had hit number 22 in the charts. But when they came back to America and started touring again, the Ramones were met with nothing but derision and ridicule from both the audiences and the general public. Well, as you said before, they had a fairly strong fan base, you know, in New York City, California, in the middle of America, not so much. You know, it, that's a little bit tougher to break through. Yeah, where most of America is. Yes, because <laughs> that's the thing. The Ramones <laughs> look like a gang. Yeah, they do. And they look all fucked up. <laughs> I mean, that was mostly Dee Dee's fault. <laughs> and there was this one story where they were somewhere in Texas where they stopped at a gas station mini market, you know, just like pick up supplies like candy and stuff. And the locals were just looking at these four weirdos who obviously stuck out. Yeah. I mean, like a lot. I mean, even now when we go back to Texas, like we, me and you stick I, out. I definitely stick out. <laughs> we don't we don't look weird. We wear, you know, no, we're just normal. Yeah, normal we're, people. Yeah, we're absolutely normal people. And and this isn't 2019 was the last time yeah. we were in Texas. And, and it's and we look very normal here in New York City and hell look normal in most cities across America, but in Texas, like, we fucking stick out like sore thumbs. And I couldn't imagine what it was like looking like the Ramones in 1978. And going through the candy aisle. (laughs) (laughs) And the funny thing is, like, one of the uh, locals or the attendant goes up to Monty and asks Monty, like, are you uh, driving those guys uh, from the institution? (laughs) And Monty just, like, looks at the guys going through candy and Dee like, ooh, Starburst. (laughs) And he just looks over, he's like, yeah, they're out for the day. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know. I feel like they could take care of me. <laughs> they're, they're God's creatures, too. Yes. Come on, boys! Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, they have no idea. No idea whatsoever. Yeah, that's what they thought. They thought that they were a bunch of mentally challenged guys. Yes. That's what they thought. They thought that no one, no sane person could look like that <laughs> <laughs> but in the, but it's also that it's texas so they did you know what they got they just got a straight up oh bless your heart yeah like that's what they get which is the most infuriating thing you can hear from a person <laughs> uh, <but laughs> or or there was this one time in uh washington that they play in washington state they didn't bomb the show but they still managed to upset the crowd of course somehow they find a way. <laughs> so they're at a lumberjack bar. So there's all these lumberjack guys just hanging around watching the show. And the audience got annoyed that they only played a 30-minute set. I mean, like, the Ramones are, like, backstage, like, breaking down and everything. And, and they're just like, what do you mean they, they're used to longer sets? Like, we did 25 songs. <laughs> <laughs> By design. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, they realize, like, you know what? We, we got to go out and uh, we got to play something. Because uh, they were fined in a, in, on a show in Wisconsin because they only played a half-hour set. So they're like, we don't want to upset these people. All right, guys, let's put our heads together. What other songs do we know? You know what? Let's just do it again. <laughs> Let's just do the whole set again. Let's, we'll, we'll just run it through one more time. So that's what they did. The Ramones just played their set twice. Yeah. That's great. And this this sort of thing happened to them a lot during this time period. Like, they almost got killed by a bunch of fucking Grateful Dead fans because Grateful Dead fans are 
uh, used to three hour long shows. Uh, and they actually got chased down the street after a fucking performance once because the Grateful Dead fans were so pissed off. That's so messed up. I thought Grateful Dead fans were just chill. <laughs> no. Are you fucking kidding me? Hippies are the most intense oh, people on the planet. we talked about this. <laughs> we talked about this. Hippies are the angriest fucking people on the planet. So it's really smart to say that to anger the hippies. <laughs> you're just, you're just, you know, fueling that fire. You're just taking your poke and you're just going <laughs> to... <laughs> <laughs> the legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. But even though the Ramones were getting very little respect on the road from the Hoi Polloi, they never stopped going. And soon after returning to America, the Ramones recorded one of their best albums, Rocket to Russia. So this was Tony and Tommy producing with Ed as sound engineer again. Mm-hmm. But of course, it was really Ed and Tommy producing it. Yeah. <laughs> for yeah, the most it, part. Of course, Tony, Tony Bon Jovi. And, and Tony Bon Jovi at this point, this is just I just love this tiny little piece of trivia. Tony was fresh off of producing a band called Mecco. Uh, and Mecco was a band that ended up do, having a top 10 hit with a disco cover. Whoa of the Star Wars theme. Not just a top 10 hit, number one 
Wow. <laughs> that was a number one hit for two weeks in October of 1977. And that's what Tom, Tony Bongiovi had done right before Rocket to Russia. I bet you probably heard that song at least once in every high school talent show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we had a wonderful time with that uh, record when we first started dating. Yeah, you put that on, and because I didn't know about this. <laughs> no one no one informed me about this. No, nobody knew about I don't know. I, I've loved that record for you. It's such a weird little fucking 70s artifact. <laughs> yeah, and then Mecco ended up doing, I think, three. They did a Star Trek one. They did a whole, like, they did a... Ooh, a Star Trek. They did a, yeah, they did a, a, a Star Trek disco album. They did a... a solo album that's actually really fucking solid it's like disco funk but it's really tight disco funk uh but yeah that that's just a fun little aside that's what tony bond because that's <laughs> he was busy the- <laughs> he was busy hustling uh the mecca yeah he was bu- <laughs> busy hustling the mecca sounds fucking disgusting <laughs> <laughs> so the ramones they were recording their third album at a studio in midtown new york which uh used to be an old episcopalian church so, which was great. It's great for acoustics. It's huge, lots of space. The Ramones are able to play at the same time, give it a live feel to like like a live show, mm-hmm. which is great. Ed Stasium decided to use room microphones, like room mics, to capture the the room sound. So he just put them all over the place. Oh, cool. Yeah, and like gave it like more like an ambient kind of sound bleed, like make it all those technical stuff that you <laughs> engineers do. Yeah, all the stuff that engineer. Yeah, I mean, this is a uh, you know somewhat similar to. Uh, Hansa studio that we went to in uh, in Berlin, you know, like the, a big wooden room can sometimes sound fucking fantastic when yes. it comes to recording these rock bands. Yeah, and I mean, they did sound great. I mean, I, I Don't Care is on that album that we talked about in mm-hmm. episode one, and Joey's first song that he wrote for the Ramones, and my favorite, We're a Happy Family. Yeah. <laughs> Churchy. <laughs> the thing about Rocket to Russia is that if the Ramones were ever going to break out and truly hit superstar status in America with an album, it was going to be this one. Besides just Sheena, Rocket to Russia also had what should have been an American classic, Rockaway Beach. One, two, three, four. <laughs>
That's a hit. Yeah. Should have been. been a hit. Should have been. <laughs> Should have been. Yeah, and they, and they thought this was the hit. Like they thought this is like because Dee Dee wrote that song. Uh, they thought like as soon as he fucking came out, they're like, man, Dee Dee, you fucking did it, man. You did it. You wrote our fucking hit. Unfortunately, though, Rockaway Beach only got to number sixty six in the charts. And this, along with Sheena and Do You Want to Dance, the other two Rocket to Russia singles, these are the only songs from the Ramones to ever hit the overall top 100 in America. Chart-wise, outside of later modern rock chart distinction, th- those are two different charts, the Hot 100 and the modern rock charts, Rocket to Russia was the high point for the Ramones. But it was nowhere near where the Ramones believe they should be, nor where they deserve to be. But there is a reason for this. If you want to know why the Ramones didn't reach superstardom with this record, or why no radio station ever played Sheena or Rockaway Beach, the answer is surprisingly short and simple. The Sex Pistols. Oh, they ruin everything. (laughs) They really fucking did. I mean, they they, they did play some pretty good music. They did, yeah. Yes. I I mean, it was, uh, but the Sex Pistols were a band that was set to self-destruct, and when they did self-destruct, they took a lot of other bands with them. See, from the perspective of radio stations across the country, here in America, the Sex Pistols were representative of all punk bands. And if the radio stations started playing punk rock, then that meant the punk rock bands would come to their town. And if the punk bands came to town, then they'd come into the studio for an interview. And the punk bands swear on live broadcasts. At least that's what they thought from the Sex Pistols. And swearing on live radio, that's a big fucking FCC fine. And also, punk bands are fucking gross. They spit and they puke everywhere. That's what they're known for. That's what they're famous for. And nobody wanted that in their fucking radio studio. Or at least, that's the theory. They talk about this a lot in End of the Century, the Ramones documentary. And since the image of the Sex Pistols that Malcolm McLaren cultivated so strongly in the UK became the worldwide perception of punk rock in the music business, nobody played the Ramones because punks sounded like a real pain in the ass. It's as simple as that. And when it came to British punks, they're fucking right. Sex Pistols were a pain in the ass. The Damned were certainly a pain in the ass. Possibly even more so than the Sex Pistols. But while the Ramones certainly had their problems... The Ramones weren't really a pain in the ass. These were just dudes trying to make a living and have a good time doing it. And aside from a couple of dark tracks from Rocket to Russia, like I Don't Care, that album was a good time. Everything was a fucking good time except for the dark tracks. You had originals like Rockaway Beach. And of course, you also had the best cover the Ramones ever did. Fucking Surfing Bird. No oh, fucking surfing bird.
Surfing Bird, my top five favorite songs. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, every cover of Surfing Bird. I mean, it's just, I actually want to do a whole episode. And we might, when we do the Cramps, because the Cramps also had a very famous cover of Surfing Bird, we might do like a little bonus episode just on the history of Surfing Bird, because that song does have a fascinating history. It really does. Yeah, it's a great, and it's just, God, I just fucking love that song so much. Yeah. From the Trashmen all the way to fucking the Ramones to yeah, the Cramps. That's, that's how the Trashmen got a record co- contract. Yeah. They got it because of the song. Yeah, and Surfing Bird is actually like two other songs smushed together. I know. It's great. It's, it's great. so good. <laughs> There's a funny story where uh, the Ramones, they played that song at a show in California, and there was a kid in the audience who had a dead seagull tied (laughs) to its feet in a rope, and he was swinging around like, you know, like a lasso, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then when he let it go, it went straight for Dee Dee and just wrapped around him, all around his neck, like he's like, I don't know, like the ancient mariner. (laughs) <laughs> it's a fucking dead seagull bolo. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's awful for the seagull. Awful for not, the Not cool. Yeah, no, not at all. I don't know. Maybe the seagull was already dead. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, it served one last purpose. But just after Rockaway Beach was released as a single in November of 1978, the Ramones were once again hit with bad luck when Joey had an accident in New Jersey that ended up canceling the rest of the tour. Yeah, it, it really does suck. This was uh, November 19th, 1977, where the Ramones were headlining a show in Passaic, New Jersey, so pretty close to home. Yeah. And they were also playing with the Talking Heads who were supporting, so they were playing at that moment while the Ramones were backstage and they were kind of like getting ready for the show, for them to go on. They're getting all pumped in their pre-show warm-up that we were talking Fucking about. Fucking yeah, yeah, man! <laughs> Joey's like drinking his like seven cups of coffee just black coffee just clearing his head and what joey had on the road with him all the time that he would get his roadie to like kind of put together for him was kind of like a makeshift vaporizer yeah uh just to like clear up his sinuses to help him like sing a little bit and so what happened is that their roadie little matt plugged in a hot plate boiled water on a tea kettle and uh just took out like the the top lid thing and put tinfoil on it okay and then uh you know piercing the holes in the foil and then, like, putting, like, a little rubber band around it just to keep it, you know, firm. Yeah, it could create a little bit of vapor, a little bit of steam for Joey to clear out his sinuses. Perfect. Yeah. And so Joey takes off his glasses. He's, he puts on a towel. He drapes it over his head and just hovers over this tea kettle that's just, like, steaming all this steam <laughs> <laughs> into his chest. But then suddenly there was, like, this loud pop followed by, like, sizzling. And Joey starts screaming. Because of what happened was the rubber band snapped off and all of the water and steam just flew into oh. Joey's face, all over his face, all over his chest, just hot, boiling water oh. all over him, just immediately just engulfing him. Joey got burned so badly. His face and lips were red and puffed up all over his face and his chest. Like, Danny Fields had to rush Joey to the ER. Meanwhile, talking heads are still playing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. They're like, you know what? Uh, We we have to go on an hour. Maybe we can figure this all out. 
So they go to the ER. Joey comes back an hour later. His face is covered in cream. Ugh. Just like, like, and it was just melting from the heat of his skin because his, his skin was so hot. Whenever you burn yourself, it just, it, you could feel it emanating. Yeah. So the cream is just pretty much falling off him. <laughs> like, kind of like, uh, was that scene in the Mrs. Outfire when Robin Williams <laughs> puts, like, the, the frosting on her face? Uh-huh. It's just like that. <laughs> and so he eventually decides, like, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm just going to go on stage and I'm going to do the whole show which he did he did the entire show with cream on his face falling off of his face (laughs) because the stage lights were melting it it was really yeah it was awful like joey afterwards was just like i'm just gonna go home i'm gonna sleep this off the next morning he just kept swelling up more and more so they took him to the burn center they said that he had gotten third degree burns he had to stay in the hospital for a week and it was in the hospital that joey started writing i want to be sedated It's actually a song that he started writing in the hospital, uh, and then he just he kept working on it for like nearly a year, really. And a lot of the song is about not really I want to be sedated because he's in a hospital. It just kind of just seemed to be the place for him to start writing songs, really. <laughs> but it's a, it's a road song. It's about them traveling in England because they just came from England and they had these long van rides that we talked about, and like they had nothing to do, nowhere to go. Touring is can be extreme, excruciatingly boring. Yeah, like it really get, especially if you're doing like city to city to city. Like it can be terribly fucking boring. And they didn't have iPads and fucking Nintendo Switches <laughs> to, to keep them busy. They had staring out the fucking window. So that's why they decided let let's just write a fun song. <laughs> yeah, and when Joey did come back from this injury, when he started playing shows again, he wasn't quite healed up enough. And when he uh, started singing uh, the first song, he got too close to the microphone and the microphone caught on one of his wounds. And when he pulled away from the mic, a big fucking strip of skin Ah. just came fucking peeling off. But he kept going. Didn't stop. Because fucking Joey, because fucking Johnny would find him $25 if he did. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, I'm looking at him like Hellraiser. (laughs) Just a few months after Joey's accident, though, the Ramones would go through their first of many lineup changes. In early 1978, founding member Tommy Ramone left his position as drummer after the grind of touring began to take its toll. Yeah, Tommy, 
did not like touring. No. It was mostly because of the Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. I mean, he enjoyed recording. I mean, that was kind of where his background was at anyways. And also, he was able to be in charge. Yeah. But on the road, he's just like another doofus. John- <laughs> you know, he's another guy from the institution. Well, <laughs> well Johnny's in charge. Yeah, exactly. At least, uh, Johnny's in charge at least over the Ramones, and then somebody else is in charge of Johnny. Yeah. Like, it's, uh, so it's... So Tommy is like a couple of rungs down the ladder. Yeah, and especially Tommy would say like they would tease him a lot. He said he was uh, mentally abused by the guys. Like he was suffering from depression and on the verge of a nervous breakdown because of the Ramones. <laughs> well, I mean, the Ramones. Directly. <laughs> well, I mean, the band, they, because as we said, you know, they were very bored a lot of times and how they entertained themselves was by teasing other people on the road with them like Monty Melnick got it so fucking bad (laughs) like I don't know why but they took to making sheep noises at Monty Melnick they just go bah bah (laughs) they do it over and over and over again which doesn't sound that bad but after someone does it the 400th time the 500th time it's gonna fucking get to you and Tommy didn't want to deal with that shit anymore he couldn't no, he's like, I'm, I'm done. I mean, Dee Dee and Joey didn't want him to go. He's like, come on, it's so much fun. Really? <laughs> That's not how I remember it. And, and Johnny was, you know, he was shocked. He was surprised. Like, I don't understand. We were having a great time. <laughs> but Tommy continued to work in the studio and songwriting where he was happiest. So he was like, I'm still Ramon, kind of. Yeah. And that was the way he wanted it to. The last show that Tommy played f- with the Ramones was May 4th, 1978 at CBGB's, which was a benefit for Johnny Blitz. Yep, Johnny Blitz from the Dead Boys because Johnny Blitz had almost died from being an idiot. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes. Actually, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't necessarily his fault, though, because this, this, this happened April 19th, 1978. This is in New York City, downtown. Uh, Dead Boys had just played a show with the Ramones like a few days earlier. Uh, Johnny Blitz uh, was hanging out with his buddy Billy Rath mm-hmm. from the Heartbreakers and Michael Sticka, who was a roadie for Dead Boys and, and Blondie. And they're all hanging out with their girlfriends, having a good time. After a long night of drinking, they grabbed food at a deli on 5th Street, 2nd Avenue. So while they're at the deli, Michael Sticka, the roadie, decides to go get a cab. He's like, I got my food. I'm going home. Yeah. He starts waving the hail a cab. And just then he sees this car just coming at him and swerves at the last second. And where like Michael like screams like, hey, what, what the fuck, man? I'm walking here. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's exactly that. I mean, th- this is new. This is downtown New York, 1978. This is five one in of, the morning, five in the morning. This is one of the worst neighborhoods in America. Yes. Not ju- not just in New York City. Like, this is one of the worst neighborhoods in the entire fucking country. This is a dangerous place. Especially that car. Yeah. That car that swerved and stopped at the light ahead. Suddenly, all the doors of the car open and a group of five tough Puerto Rican dudes get out of the car and start yelling at Michael. Like, what the fuck you say? Yeah. Like, shit like that. And Michael's like, I'm just hailing a cab, man. Not a... Not a group of thugs. <laughs> and the guys start to surround Michael. And, you know, they had chains and baseball bats. They're really tough and really mean. And so Michael goes, all right, hey, man, you swerved. You fucked up. I'll tell you what. I'm going to let this one go. <laughs> no harm, no foul. I'll give you guys a break this time. Right. And, and so Michael is threatened. So he takes out his, his knife and he kind of like swipes at them. Eventually, they start to back off. They they realize he has a weapon, even though they have weapons too. <laughs> but still, they're at this point, they're thinking, not worth it. Right. They're turning around. It's over. 
It's over. They start walking away. Johnny Blitz runs out of the deli once he finds out what's going on. And he goes, I'm going to kill those guys. I'm going to kill those guys. <laughs> they tried to stick you up, man. Holy shit. And so Johnny Blitz pulls out his knife and chases after them down the street and quickly gets knocked out. Yeah. And they stab him five times all over his chest and left him for dead. He should have died. He should have died. They stabbed him all around his heart. They missed him by like that much. Yeah. And Johnny Blitz eventually had to stay in the hospital for about a month with 150 stitches. He didn't have health insurance. Oh, Johnny Blitz from the Dead Boys didn't have health insurance? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. And so with the help of Haley Crystal, the CBGB's owner, and a bunch of other people, they put on the Blitz benefit to help pay for his bills. Uh, Divine showed up. John Belushi even played drums with the Dead Boys one night, which Uh, is kind of cool. That's cool. Yeah, John Belushi, he he was in this scene at this time. I mean, like, John Belushi was totally a part of the punk scene. Huge, huge. And, you know, Animal House is about to come out because right at that moment, he's just doing, like, SNL. Yeah. But he's a, you know, a local comedian, a, a well-known guy. Yeah, he's a New York dude. Yeah. At, at this point, yeah. And he's he's a totally a part of the fucking scene. Cool shit. Yep, he played there. Of course, uh, the Ramones played. Dictators, Senders, the Contortions, Shrapnel, Idol, Sick Fucks. And, of course, the Dead Boys. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about, like, a show to travel back in time to see, like, this is one of those shows. Uh, and that was Tommy Ramone's last show with the Ramones, uh, at least for a little while. So, to replace Tommy, the Ramones recruited a man who, for many of us, is just as much a Ramone as any of them are. Because this guy played drums for the Ramones far longer than Tommy did. His name is Mark Bell. But we know him better as Marky Ramon. Yeah. A.K.A. the last surviving Ramon. Yes, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Marky was still a native New Yorker, but instead of Queens, Marky grew up in the Flatbush neighborhood of Brooklyn. True to form for the Ramones, Marky was first inspired musically by the Beatles and learned drums after watching Ringo on the Ed Sullivan Show. Ringo does look pretty cool. <laughs> he does. In that in that clip, Ringo does look pretty cool. I could see how I could see a kid watching that in nineteen sixty four and thinking, that's what I want to do. I yeah. want to be that guy. Yeah. But, but Ringo actually my mom got the most angry I've ever seen my mom is when I told her that I thought my dad looked like Ringo. Really? <laughs> Why? She's like, I mean, he, he does doesn't. Not, he does not look no. like Ringo. He does not look like Ringo. I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right, fine. All right, he looks like Paul. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, mom's a George lady. She's a George. Yeah, ja, mom's I'm a George lady yeah, too. Yeah, mom's been a George girl uh, forever. She loves George Harrison. Yeah, but man, I mean, th- but that that performance of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, I know it's been talked about a million, million, billion times before, but it really did reverberate throughout American culture. You know, I mean, still that I uh, like I just played that clip off of YouTube. Guess how many streams that fucking clip has? A million. 53 million. Jeez. <laughs> now, it makes sense. I mean, even when we're like playing that right now, I'm just like singing along like, yeah, 
This is fun. Yeah. Yeah. The Beatles are good. <laughs> yeah, the Beatles. They're really good. <laughs> I keep having to remind myself because I keep forgetting. I know. I do too. Like I, the last time I was reminded was when we did the Mark David Chapman series on last podcast where, you know, I remember when I was listening, I was like, I came into the other room from my office and I was like, you know what, darling? The Beatles are pretty good. Yeah. They're pretty, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Got to listen to Revolver again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, we should. Yeah. We absolutely should. We'll bring out the record. It's a date. Now, Marky was as much a part of the original New York punk scene as any of the others, if not more so. While the Ramones were a pretty insular group, Marky played with some of the best musicians of the day at one point or another. And had been playing in bands since like the early 70s. I had been recording since the early 70s. Yeah, yeah he was in like kind of a proto-fantasy metal band. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not great, but it's still fun. Yeah, they uh, did two albums. Yeah, they did two albums. They're called Dust. Uh, the albums are called Dust and Hard Attack. Uh, let's listen to one of, the, one of the songs. It's called Ivory. fucking good yeah it's all right yeah (laughs) it's it's all right yeah yeah yeah. it's fine but that wasn't marky being a part of the punk scene in 1972 marky tried out for the new york dolls after their original drummer billy mercia died due to the idiocy of two groupies in the uk talked about that in one of our early series i think suicide yeah yeah he od'd yeah but marky was of course passed over in favor of jerry nolan and it's actually a good thing that Marky did not get into the New York Dolls. He would be dead by now. <laughs> he actually probably would Yeah. Be. Even so, Marky stayed a part of the scene. And it was while he was hanging out at Max's Kansas City that he met and started playing with another famous New York scenester, Wayne County, later known as Jane County. has a good point (laughs) who's gonna pay for the blood who's gonna pay for the blood (laughs) (laughs) so wayne county she was an actor musician 
personality. She's still alive. She is an actor musician personality. <laughs> yeah, Wayne County's still out there. Yes. Yeah, that probably lives in L.A. now. Uh, she was definitely part of the Andy Warhol scene way before. Uh, she was signed on to David Bowie's management company, Main Man, back mm-hmm. when we were talking about the the Stooges and Iggy Pop during his uh, solo time. And uh, her style was like very campy, like, you know, very low rent John Waters, like you said the other day. Yeah, it's 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 John Waters without the charm. Right. I would say, yeah. Cause well, <laughs> I mean, Wayne County has its own, she has its own kind of charm. It's a different kind. It's a different kind, yeah. It I mean, can be grating for some. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the first EP is called Blatantly Offensive. The songs are like, fuck off, toilet love, mean motherfucking man. <laughs> like, it's like, fuck off, fuck off if you don't want to fuck. Like, let's listen to just a little bit of fuck off. Like, just to give you a taste of Wayne County. If you don't want to fuck me, baby. Time for yesterday's news. Don't shoot me up with your bullshit news. If you don't wanna fuck me, baby, baby, fuck off. I mean, there's a little bit of charm to it, eh? Yeah. yeah. It's like, <laughs> Dad, I finally realized my dream. Can you come and sit front row? <laughs> so, uh, yes. Very pre, uh, a little less refined uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch kind yeah. of thing. Although they they do come from the same animal, which was Squeezebox, which is like a you know great drag queen show that they that they would hold all the time until like the nineties. Anyway, so she was DJing at Max's one time because she was she was a very important DJ actually. She she would be spinning records at all the big places like Max's Kansas City, and that's where she met Marky Ramone. I mean, I'm sorry, Mark Bell back, back then. Yes. So she asked Mark Bell to join her band Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys. Sir, it really was called the Backstreet Boys. Yes, yeah. he was. <laughs> Marky Ramone was a Backstreet Boy. That's true. And you know they they played together for a while. They even record. Uh, they even recorded a few demos together for Main Man, but that whole thing fell through, as we know, yep. as we talked about. So there's this one show where Marky was playing drums for you know Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> still funny. It's still funny. And, the, the, and this is like March 1976. Like this is before the Ramones' first album uh, comes out because like Wayne County was a part of the scene for years before. Oh yeah. The punk scene really blew up, and Wayne County was more of a uh, Max's Kansas City personality than a CBGB's personality. Oh yeah, there were factions. There were absolutely factions. <laughs> So they're playing the show. Marky's uh, playing the drums, of course. Wayne County is up front, uh, probably with, you know, blown up condoms, like stapled to her wig like she used to like to do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, funny enough, Dee Dee and Joey just happened to be there watching the show in the audience. <laughs> so anyway, while they're playing Handsome Dick Manitoba, as we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Handsome Dick, the owner of our favorite bar in New York City, uh, <laughs> up until it closed recently. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. And he was in the Dictators, of mm-hmm. course. And the Dictators at this point had, uh, they had, I think they were maybe six months after their first album was released. So Dick was a, a, a name in the scene. Absolutely. Handsome Dick Manitoba starts heckling at Wayne County while she's trying to do her show. Mm-hmm. And he just keeps going at it, going at it constantly, just, just really trying to just really irk her. Yeah. You know, and Wayne County, of course, was annoyed. She was like, fuck off. You know, and she started calling Dick out and everything. And Handsome Dick loved this. <laughs> <laughs> eventually, he just, so he started walking towards the stage and Wayne suddenly like felt 
really threatened. Yeah. You know, she was also on tons of speed. Yeah. And that could do that. Yeah. So she took her mic stand and hit him really hard in the shoulder with the base of the mic stand. Like, pow. Dick was knocked off his feet and he fell straight into the front tables. Eventually, he gets up and he lunges at Wayne County. <laughs> and so th- there goes a huge rolling around and the wrestling and grabbing <laughs> the, the wig and throwing it around and, and, and covered in blood. Everyone's covered in blood. Eventually, Hilly Crystal grabbed Handsome Dick, who was also covered in blood, mm. and just threw him out of the club. Yeah. It was like, that's it. You're out. Wayne County was like, all right. Let me get my wig. Hand me my wig. <laughs> She's also covered in blood. His blood. <laughs> she gets herself together and go, gets back on stage and says, all right, do you want us to quit or do you want some rock and roll? And the crowd looks back at handsome Dick and, you know, thrown on the sidewalk, broken collarbone and covered in blood and, and looks back at her and be like, we want rock and roll! <laughs> yeah! And then, like, music starts playing. They all start dancing and everything. And the door closes. And Handsome Dick's like, someone take me to the hospital. <laughs> I broke my collarbone. And which is actually what happened. Yeah. Uh, what Handsome Dick said. It's was, all kind of a misunderstanding. It was a huge misunderstanding. He actually went to go see Wayne County because he was a fan. Huge fan of, Han- of Wayne County. <laughs> like He was very excited he to go that night. Drank too much. And he thought he heckling was kind of part because, you know, a lot of uh, drag shows have a lot of a, you know, kind of rapport with the audience. It's where- audience participation is a huge part of a drag show. And so Handsome Dick just took it too far. Yeah. And Wayne, thinking that Handsome Dick was going to assault her or something some way, that wasn't true. Handsome Dick was actually just trying to go around the stage to go down the hallway to the bathroom. Yeah, the ba- <laughs> the bathroom at CBGB's is right next to the stage. You have to go. It was just, where it was, it was just to the left of the stage, and you go down this dank fucking stairwell <laughs> to the grossest bathrooms in New York City. Yeah. The, I mean, well, the, that Mars bar always has, like, kind of a <laughs> running... Uh, competition as to whose bathroom could be more disgusting uh but yeah and, and unfortunately it was just a gigantic misunderstanding it really was uh, eventually they had a benefit for wayne county's legal bills at max's because handsome dick sued <laughs> <laughs> he sued wayne because he wasn't uh, provoking her and she attacked him first and and you know Wayne County needed funds for a lawyer. Eventually, the case was obviously thrown out when they found out about this whole thing. Wayne County was was really sorry it happened. Uh, she's sorry that Dick got hurt. Uh, Handsome Dick was also sorry that the whole thing happened. Uh, the Ramones, who played for that benefit and a bunch of other bands, also apologized. They thought it was a hate crime. They thought because Handsome Dick was yelling queer, <laughs> <laughs> which I can understand could be a huge misunderstanding that he thought it was funny to say that, but yeah. really he was not threatening her or, 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 you know, demeaning her in any way, uh, at least so he thought of it yeah. <laughs> as, as uh, it, it just it was just the weirdest thing. And Marky Ramon is in the back right before he becomes <laughs> Marky Ramon in, in the drum set being like, all right, this is my last show. <laughs> and it was. And yeah. then eventually Wayne County uh, soon uh, soon after that moved to London and then changed her name to Jane County. Yeah. And still goes by Jane County to this day. I don't know where she lives now. Uh, I would imagine not New York City. Most of those characters don't live in New York City anymore. Nah. There's still some around, like we said. Like we see Lenny Kay every once in a while. I usually run into him at the WFMU Record Fair. We cool. saw him. <laughs> we saw him at a show the other, uh, the other night, that uh, Velvet Underground tribute show that we went to. Like we saw him there so there are still some of the characters around uh but for the most part yeah they just can't afford new york city no more 
And when Marky first saw the Ramones in 1975, he thought they were fucking awful. <laughs> but it was mostly because they didn't have any drum fills. It was just the straight one, two, one, two, one, two beat. And you know, if you remember Dust that we played uh, just a second ago, like there was a lot of drum fills in that, a lot of drum work. And Marky thought it was fucking sacrilege to just have a drummer keeping a one, two, one, two beat. But when the Ramones debut album was released, Marky finally got it. And he eventually came to embrace that stripped down style. But before he joined the Ramones, Marky would play with one of the most important artists in the 70s New York scene, Richard Hell. And with this, we're gonna solve what for some of you <laughs> may have been the biggest mystery of our little show here. From Richard Hell and the Voidoids, here's Love Comes in Spurts, which a certain someone in this room that's huh? sitting right across from me. Ah, me. <laughs> Not the blanket behind me. <laughs> no. Certain someone misheard for years as no dogs in space. It does! <laughs> I still hear that! <laughs> I was a child who wanted all of some wild though, died of slow motion, but played with devotion, baby, and say with devotion, just a whole other notion. I was fucking in a half, and it wasn't no love. No dogs in space! Oh no, it hurts! No dogs in space! Oh no, it hurts! No dogs in space! It always hurts! No dogs in space! Oh no! I just can't get wise to the tragic lies, though I now know the fact they don't fight like an ass. Baby, love from his first in dangerous clubs, and it murders your heart. They didn't tell you that part, baby. No dogs in space! No dogs in space! Oh no, it hurts! No dogs in space! Oh no, it hurts! Case closed. <laughs> Right? Yeah, I mean, I I heard it the first time <laughs> <laughs> when you were like, yeah, that song, No Dogs in Space, it's fucking great. I love that song. Why is it called Love Comes in Spurts? <laughs> it's No Dogs in Space, right? <laughs> and that's where the name of the show comes from. It's yeah, pretty much that. That was it. Mystery solved. Mystery solved. Yeah, uh, that was Richard Hell and the Voidoids. That was Richard Hell and the Voidoids on KFWN <laughs> Chicago's own. New wave station. <laughs> I love it when you do that. <laughs> so Richard Hell, he was, you know, a poet, then musician. Like they, they called him like the punk Bob Dylan. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And he played bass in television, that, that band that we talked about in uh, episode three, mm -hmm. and uh, with his old friend Tom Verlaine. He was the original bassist for television. That's yeah. right. Was not on the first, was not on the album, but no. was originally in the band. He had already left at that point uh, over creative differences with Tom Verlaine, which is mostly like, you never played the songs I write. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was true. It was true, yeah. But that's the thing that Richard Hell went off and did his own shit and made... Possibly uh, one of the best punk albums of uh, the late 70s. Oh, it's great. Yeah, Blank Generation is a classic. Yes, yes. And then Marky joined as a drummer, mm -hmm. and they released an EP, you know, the Blank Generation. Yeah. And, you know, and they had, you know, Another World, Gotta Lose. Uh, they recorded a whole Voidoids album in 1977 for Sire, uh, again with Sire, and they toured with The Clash in the UK. So, yeah, they were a real band. They were absolutely, like, the, the that album, if you've never, like, it's one somewhat of a lost classic. Uh, it doesn't get put on a whole lot of lists, and it doesn't get mentioned a hell of a whole lot, but fuck, Blank, Blank Generation is, mm. uh, it's one of the best albums of the fucking decade. 
Mm, yes. And after a while, Marky was really tired of being broke. Well, yeah, because Richard Hell's a fucking heroin addict. Yes. <laughs> That's what happened. Like, they were expecting all this money. They're like, well, we're a real band. We're touring with The Clash. We're doing great. I don't understand. We have an EP out. We have an album out. And Marky, and Marky, after like a while, he was just like, I've had it. I can't do this anymore. So he went up to his bandmates and he slammed his bills on the table. Just unpaid utility bills. <laughs> you know, final notice, final notice. Yeah, we're talking about like gas bill here. Right. Like this is not like convertible bill. No. <laughs> like this is fucking, my ch- fucking electricity is about to be shut off, you assholes. Where's the fucking money? Exactly, exactly. Because he already went through the entire advance, just like buying himself shoes and stuff. And so he told the guys, how am I going to pay for this? I don't have any money. Please get Sire to give me my money. And Richard Hale just looked at him and said, I got to get mine from Sire first. I'm sorry, man. And just kind of slumped back because he was really strung out on heroin. Yeah. So Marky walked away from the band. He had to. And yeah. He, and Richard Howell eventually cleaned up like, yeah, and became a fantastic writer. He's still alive. Yes. <laughs> he, he's doing fine. Yeah, he's doing great. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Now, as early as December 1977, Dee Dee was talking to Marky about Tommy leaving the Ramones. And Dee Dee pretty much straight up told him one night at Seabees that the job was his if he wanted it once the time came. Yes, and the time is now. Because <laughs> <laughs> Marky was on board. He needed a new band. So this was perfect for him. He met up with Johnny, and Johnny just talked to him. He's like, okay, I'm going to lay out all the rules. No drinking, no drugs, no fucking around, and be on time. Marky's like, perfect. Cool, I'm a Ramon. And Johnny's like, not so fast. <laughs> you got to go tomorrow to the performance studios and we got to audition you. And so Marky's like, great, fine. So he gets there and he's just like, okay, this is really exciting. This is cool. Here's everybody. Oh, look, there's Monty. Great. He sits down at, at the drum set and then he notices there's another drum set behind him. <laughs> and Tommy comes in and is like, I was just, I just want to help you out because you, you know, you need some help with stuff. And oh. Marky's like, oh, thanks, Tommy. That's very nice. Yeah, because I mean, Marky's replacing Tommy and Tommy, well, obviously was more than happy to do that <laughs> and to help out Marky to make sure that he would be the right guy. Yeah, there was not bad blood here. Like, no. this is not an acrimonious split at all. Like, these, these guys were like, yeah, we get it. Uh, yeah, we'll bring in another guy. Of course we can bring in another guy. Right. And after just 30 seconds into the first song, it was obvious that he was perfect. Yeah. He was able to take direction from Tommy's style. And he was actually a more proficient drummer than Tommy. Obviously, Tommy was just, he learned how to play while he was in the remotes. Yeah, to- Tommy was just making shit up as he went along. Right. Yeah, I mean, Tommy Mar- was great. Yeah, he was. But Marky was like the professional drummer. Yeah. 
But the problem with Tommy leaving the band was that Tommy had been the spokesperson of the Ramones and therefore pretty much the leader of the group for its entire existence up until that point. And then he left. Oh, no. Because <laughs> remember, the Ramones was Tommy's idea. Right, uh, yeah. It was, it was his idea. It was his vision. So as soon as Tommy left, the power struggles and conflicts that the Ramones became so famous for began, although there would still be many more albums recorded before and after certain members stopped talking to each other. <laughs> so with Marky in the band, the Ramones went into the studio for their fourth album, trying once again to record the hit single that unfortunately never came. Nevertheless, this fourth album, Road to Ruin, is still fucking great. catchy song classic rock song yeah yeah with road to ruin their songs are really catchy they're great uh they actually spent three four months working on this like an entire summer now and that is different for the ramones before then it was a few days yes. to a couple of weeks and also because remember you know their first three albums they already had a song the songs kind of figured out yeah this time they had to figure out the songs in hotel rooms you know between gigs whenever they get a chance to hang out at arturo's loft you know that kind of stuff yeah, the more a band goes on tour, the harder it is to write the next album, always. Yes, and it was definitely even harder. I remember Johnny saying this in his book, Commando, saying, it's hard to come up with 14 songs, man. <laughs> Most bands have eight. We should really make our songs a little longer, <laughs> which is true. Yeah. And this is the record where Ed Stacey finally gets co- co-producer credit. Fine. He didn't get co-producer credit on the, first two, on the, for the previous two that he worked on? No, he was sound engineer because... Tony Bon Jovi was a uh, producer. Yeah. So Ed Stacian finally gets co-producing credit with Tommy, of course. And the guys, they came to the rehearsals with their own songs. So at this point, a lot of them were writing individually. As we talked about, like with Joey writing on the road or with uh, Dee Dee writing on, you know, they're coming t- together with their own ideas. Sometimes they even have the whole song already put together. And of course, that causes further problems later on. <laughs> yeah. But even though the Ramones definitely had a shot with this album, especially with I Want to Be Sedated on the fucking track list, the Ramones were taken out of the game completely when Sid killed Nancy. Allegedly. (laughs) It's alleged. Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) Now, in case you didn't listen to our Sid and Nancy episode, and if you haven't, I promise it isn't as annoying as you think it is. (laughs) It's it's nowhere near as annoying as the movie Sid and Nancy. (laughs) Sid! Like, there's not, there's only a couple of those. There's a little bit of that. (laughs) But in case you didn't listen to it, Sid Vicious, the former Sex Pistols bassist, was arrested for killing his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen, in the Chelsea Hotel in October of 1978. 
Now, as we said at the end of that episode, a Sid Vicious murder trial might have actually been good for the Ramones in the long run because punk on trial would have kept the genre in American and British headlines for months at a time. That would have been the yeah. fucking headline. Oh, yeah. Punk on trial. And everyone would have been asking, what's punk? What is this? I'm curious. And of course, since murder is attached to it, the kids are going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it I think uh, I'm, we're talking to an expert here. <laughs> <laughs> but as it happened, Sid Vicious died of a heroin overdose before going to trial. From that point on, punks were not only spitting, puking, screaming monsters, but they were also murderers which is part of why punks make good generic criminals in action movies in the 80s. Yeah, like, uh, you know, Rocksteady and Bebop. From the fucking Ninja Turtles, yeah. They're, yeah. They are punks. They're criminals. <laughs> they're not murderers. <laughs> I mean, you watch, uh, what is it, RoboCop 2. You know, like, the the whole, all of the fucking villains in that were punks. Like that's And if you watch any fucking movie, anytime they needed a generic criminal in the 80s, it's a punk. And these guys weren't criminals. No. Like, they were not roving bands of fucking punk gangs that were taking down cities across America. Not at all. But they were easy to dress up. They were easy to, like, if you saw someone that was a punk, you saw a guy with a mohawk going, because they all laugh like that. Like they, all, <laughs> they all have that exact same laugh. Like, it, it's, it's just easy. And punks got branded as criminals because of Sid Vicious. But even with the obvious bad press that came with the murder of Nancy Spongeon and the overdose of Sid Vicious, the Ramones were already by that point well on their way to starring in their own fucking movie, Rock and Roll High School. Rock, 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 rock and roll high school. Stasium mix. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they did a movie. They did a fucking movie. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's amazing. A full-length feature film with the remotes. Uh, Alan Arkush, uh, who directed the movie, uh, he, he was the guy who uh, worked for Roger Corman. You know, he got to start cutting trailers for Roger Corman's uh, New World Pictures. And, uh, you know, eventually he was able to pitch an idea of like, hey, how about a movie about a high school, you know, with music? And Roger Corman's like, ooh, high school musical. <laughs> that sounds like that could make money. Which How are we going to get tits in there? <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, Roger Corman wanted to make it to disco music. Ah. Uh. 
and call it Disco High. It, it, Alan Arkish was like, no, 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 that's just not going to work because uh, we need teen rebellion, right? There's nothing rebellious about disco music. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, there was also a long, uh, there was a, a long tradition of these sorts of movies, you know, like, of a, like just the cool high school movie, you know, like it's not Porky's, but you know, <laughs> no. it, it's, <laughs> but it's still, it's in like, there was a, a long tradition of those sorts of movies, like especially in the fifties. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like, you know, just, just teens running amok. Yeah. Kind of stuff. That's a genre. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely of the teens running amok genre yeah <laughs> so when they were sitting down figuring out what band or what musician to use they threw out a lot like uh, todd rungren who was uh, unavailable todd they tried todd rungren yeah <laughs> <laughs> cheap trick van halen devo and then someone says How about ramones and alan's like perfect i really love rocket to russia this is great Alan was a fan. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, the, the only other band out of that, the only uh, two bands, if it was Devo, it would be a much different movie. Oh, it would be <laughs> very different. <laughs> be very different. I could see Cheap Trick being popped into this pretty easily. Van Halen wouldn't work, though. Nah. No. Nah. Uh, and Todd Rundgren definitely wouldn't have worked. <laughs> <laughs> so Alan Arkish went to go see them play at Haraz in August. Uh, the Ramones were playing with Klaus Nomi and the Mumps. Oh, that's a great fucking bill. Yeah, must have been really fun. And Alan pitched the movie idea to like Linda Stein and Danny Fields, like, you know, their management team. He's just sitting down with them. He's like, okay, you know, High School Musical, the Ramones, we, we, we play their songs. It's going to be really great. And and Danny and Linda were like, yeah, that, that does sound good. And then Alan's like, and then at the end, the whole school blows up in flames. <laughs> and then Linda and Danny are like, give me a pen. <laughs> We're ready. This is a great idea. I love this. So once the filming was all set to start, the Ramones flew out to Los Angeles to live temporarily at the Tropicana, which was the same hotel where the Stooges lived when they recorded Funhouse. Very famous rock and roll hotel. Oh, yeah. But while the Ramones were there, they shared the building with one of the classic Angelinos of the 70s, and the Ramones would later cover this artist at the end of their career. I'm talking, of course, about Tom Witz. <laughs> Terrace, it's time to fucking get back into the Tom Waits discography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tom Waits was just hanging out there. Like, he was just by the pool, and just <laughs> waving like, there goes the Ramones. That's well, so to- cool. That's what Tom Waits did at the time, you know? Like, the late 70s, like, Tom Waits. Like, just go back and listen to that, because the song that we just played, that was from Bow Machine. That's, like, early 90s Tom Waits. But back in the late 70s, this was the time of foreign affair this is the kind of blue valentine you know 
like uh, fucking eggs and sausage. Like this, <laughs> this is Tom Waits during like peak Angelino Tom Waits, peak cool Tom Waits. I can't even imagine what it's like to go back in time and like go walk through the fucking lobby of the Tropicana Hotel. Like, oh, there's the Ramones. Oh, hey, <laughs> there's Tom Waits. Smells like Iggy Pop in here. <laughs> it's so fucking cool. <laughs> well, luckily their uh, lobby was really a parking lot. <laughs> no, it was while the Ramones were staying at the Tropicana that Joey met the woman that would end up having an outsized influence on the interpersonal relationships in the band and on Joey's songwriting. Her name was Linda. Oh, the famous Linda. The famous Linda. So this is fall of 1978. Linda Danielle, she was just staying there with her boyfriend, Justin Strauss, who was a singer of uh, Milk and Cookies. Ah. And yeah, she was just hanging out, just sitting at the trap as well. Hi, Tom. <laughs> Hi, Ramones. <laughs> kind of thing. And then Justin Strauss had to go back to New York for something. So he's like, all right, Linda, I got to go. But you know what? You stay here. I'll be right back. Wait for me. And Linda's like, you gotcha. And then two minutes later, she starts dating Joey Ramone. <laughs> And Linda was very, uh, what they, how they describe her to be is, you know, very kind of like flashy, you know, sort of uh, superficial, uh, into expensive clothing and, and yeah. fashion and all that kind of stuff. And also a real handful. <laughs> I mean, these days she's a philanthropist, you right. know, like, the, yeah, like I, I think she d turned a lot of shit around. Uh, but yeah, back, back then, handful was definitely the, th that was definitely the adjective used to describe her again and again. And apparently she continues to be with the... With, with Marky, the surviving one. <laughs> <laughs> so the romance between Joey and Linda started out like I, it was, they had like a little Thanksgiving dinner and then they started talking and then next thing you know, she was staying in his room and then he's writing all these beautiful lyrics about her and, you know, just hanging out with the Tropicana, sitting down, just watching TV on the bed. Mm -hmm. It's really very sweet. Yeah. And from that, Ended up being one of the most beautiful Ramon songs. Danny says. Christmas if there ain't no snow. <laughs> Joey's such a romantic. <laughs> he really is. I don't forget. The Ramones are there. Oh, yeah. We have to, to make a movie. Yeah. <laughs> They're there to fucking film Rock and Roll High School. And Rock and Roll High School was filmed in a deserted Los Angeles Catholic school in Watts. And while the band, for the most part, 
could deliver lines on cue for the most part. <laughs> Dee Dee, unfortunately, just couldn't quite cut it. No, no, unfortunately, he could not. <laughs> they had to cut down his lines. <laughs> See, what happened is Alan Arkish decided, like, I got to meet up with the guys and we got to sit down and kind of go over the script, do a little rehearsal, you know, just a reading. And uh, most importantly, establish a trust between actor and director. And immediately he realized, oh, they can't act <laughs> or even read the script, really. What, what are you looking at? <laughs> so which is why Didi originally had like several lines that had to be cut to one, which is like, oh, pizza. Great. Let's dig in. <laughs> that took all day. That was 40 takes. <laughs> Actually, the, the line is... Hey, pizza, it's great. Let's dig in. And it's... <laughs> hey, pizza, it's great. Let's dig in. 40 takes. You know, they shot the movie in 23 days uh, on a budget of like less than $300,000. That's nothing. I know. <laughs> the movie's like an hour and a half long. It's, you know, it's PJ Souls. She's like the main character, Riff. And she, uh, you know, she's the biggest Ramones fan of all time. And she, and she wants to go to the concert. And then, you know, all the evil adults, which is all of them, except for <laughs> Paul Bartel, because he's fucking cool. Yeah, except for except for the music teacher, Mr. McGree. <laughs> Mr. McGree is cool as shit. And in fact, throughout the film, comes to love punk rock and eventually calls them the new Beethoven. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> it's a really fun movie. And yeah, and the whole point is for Riff to uh, PJ Souls to, you know, give her songs to to the Ramones. She's like, I'm a great songwriter. Here's my songs. Kind of that that's the whole plot, I yeah. guess you could say. Yeah. Of- her yeah, her song is Rock and Roll High School. Yes. And that and she's trying to get her song lyrics to the Ramones. You know, and she's trying and she's trying, she's trying. And then finally she does get after the Ramones play a concert, she gets backstage, she's got her fucking lyrics, and she finally gets to hand them to Joey Ramone. And Joey. Joey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Joey has his fucking big moment. This is my close up. <laughs> Joey's line was, if we like him, we'll come and pay you and Mr. McGloop a visit. And then Alan yells, cut, mm. cut. Who the fuck is Mr. McGloop? <laughs> it's supposed to be Mr. McGree. And Joey's like, I, I don't know. I was thinking of Mr. Magoo, to be honest. <laughs> and Alan's like, it's cool. It's cool. Let's just do it again. And after like two, three more takes of Joey saying Mr. McGloop every single time <laughs> they decided to leave it in. And this is what we're about to play. This is the best take. <laughs> the whole movie was the best take. <laughs> okay. Okay, girly. The boys will take a look at him and get back to you tomorrow, huh? Yeah, we're going to be in town one more day, and if we like him, we'll come pay you, Mr. McGloop, a visit. <laughs> <laughs> You know, being in a movie is hard. It's very difficult. It's so, you know, good on him, but also... Mr. McGloop a visit. Like, he can't, he can't even say Mr. McGloop a visit. Like, it's Wakaba Bay Mr. McGloop a visit. The only person who can deliver their lines with any sort of competency is Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> like, every line that Johnny has, he fucking nails. That's true. But the thing about Johnny, though, is that he's just not funny. No. He's so <laughs> no. that was the problem when Alan like thought like this would be great to have the Ramones. Their songs are hilarious. This will be awesome. Uh, I, I like watching them live. He just thought they were like a bunch of like hard days night like Beatles guys who are just super witty and quit and like you know just teasing each other and messing with each other. And he realized no, they're actually kind of quiet. <laughs> they, they don't talk much. <laughs> 
it's a great movie. Like it's got some great Ramones performances. Like the the big concert scene is fantastic. Oh yeah, that was the one where they couldn't afford extras, but they had to pack the club. So they decided, why don't we just charge cover and say, come see the Ramones. <laughs> And being a Ramones movie, <laughs> which they did. And you know who was in the crowd? The who? Germs. Oh, that's cool as shit. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, the Germs are all over the fucking place. I know. <laughs> well, it's L.A. Of course. No, and, and the movie's got a great fucking climax to it. Like, the end is awesome. You know, like, when the they blow up the school. It's, 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 <laughs> I mean, it's not really a spoiler, because if you watch the trailer, they blow up the school in the trailer. <laughs> uh, but it's, I don't know, it's not really about the plot when you watch Rock and Roll High School. It's about just, uh, I mean, Clint Howard's in it. Oh, that's right. He, he's great, you know. Um, there's, it's a, and it's Mary got a Warrenoff is in it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, it's got a great soundtrack. And, of course, the, you know, the wonderful PJ Souls that every, we all know and love. Yeah. And the movie was released in April of 1979 to about the type of reviews you'd expect if you've seen Rock and Roll High School. Like, yeah, it's, you know. A movie. <laughs> it's, it's fine. I it's mean, right. It's it, fun. It's not much for plot or character development, but that's not the point. It's not what you're watching it for. The thing is, the band, they fucking loved it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's me on the big screen. Joey, Look at that. Joey supposedly went and saw it in the theater seven times. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Joey's, uh, I'm sorry. And this is Johnny's comment, right, uh, in his book that he says, this is the nicest thing ever. It was better than I thought it would be. <laughs> Wow. That's the best you're going to get from Johnny. Yeah. And of course, since Rock and Roll High School wasn't a hit, and because Road to Ruin wasn't a hit, the Ramones went back on the road and played 158 shows in 1979, in addition to the 154 they'd already played in 1978. Yeah, they had to play a few shows during their time off to pay for their expenses. I mean, to pay for the trop. I mean, yeah. they're not getting a lot of money in this low-budget B-movie that Roger Corman, as we all know, is the cheapest man ever. Yeah. So they opened for Black Sabbath three times during that period. It went okay. <sighs> the Black Sabbath... The Black Sabbath shows that uh, the Ramones ended up playing, a couple of them went okay. One of them went fucking terribly. Uh, one, so they, they it was billed as the punks versus the metalheads. <laughs> and it's like, you know the Ramones. You guys have been listening to the Ramones for hours now. The Ramones are fucking great, but when you're putting rock and roll high school against children of the grave... Children of the Grave is probably going to win out in a live <laughs> setting. Let's just fucking hear it. Yeah, when you're putting that against, yeah, yeah, she's the one. It, it's not the same. It's not the I, same at all. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a not, weird combination. It's not, a, it's not equivalent. You know, you'd think it would be, but it's not. So when the Ramones played with Black Sabbath, usually they got a lot of shit thrown at them. <laughs> like, I think they said during one Black Sabbath show when it was billed as the punks versus the metalheads, like the metalheads took it fucking seriously and threw fucking motorcycle parts at them. What? You know? and, and they had to duck and fucking and still play the fucking show. Like it was just, it was billed badly. Uh, and that was, you know, 
know, that's another one of the tragedies of the Ramones is that yeah. just no one could ever figure out how to build the Ramones. No one could ever figure yeah, out who to true. put them with. No one could ever figure out like they always they were always trying like let's get them let's get them to a wide audience. Let's see let's make everybody see the Ramones and see how fucking good they really are. Uh, but it's like I said earlier, you just can't surprise people with the Ramones, just like you can't surprise people with suicide. Like <laughs> if the if the Ramones had gotten radio play, if they had gotten on air, and if people had heard the Ramones, if they had heard Sheena on the radio, they had heard uh, Rockaway Beach, or even fucking like Blitzkrieg Bop, if they would have heard that on the radio, they would have gotten used to it first. They would have been <laughs> okay, yeah, I get it. Like that's that's pretty good. Uh, and then when they saw the Ramones, they would be primed for it. But people just weren't ready to be faced with this shit without warning. Yeah, uh, there's actually a famous picture that uh, shows exactly how not ready the audience were. <laughs> uh, it was the Canadian World Music Festival, uh, July 2nd, 1979, where they uh, the Ramones actually got booed off stage yeah. on the show. I mean, they were on the bill with, you know, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, ACDC, Johnny Winter. <laughs> <laughs> In front of 46,000 people in Toronto, and everyone just threw sandwiches at the Ramones. <laughs> and there's that famous picture with the Ramones. Uh, I mean, they're standing there with their middle fingers up in the air, kind of like, that's it, we're done. Yeah. And they just they just kind of walk off, and then Steven Tyler is there right backstage being like, oh, man, I'm so sorry, guys. I'm so sorry. And Johnny's like, whatever, fuck you, man. Just keep, <laughs> stop grabbing my arm. <laughs> Go buy some more scarves, yeah. fucking dickhead. <laughs> Thanks, Grandma. They were not in the mood. <laughs> now, this massive failure in Canada probably wouldn't have stung as bad had the Ramones not already been dealing with both their own stagnation and the rising stars of other bands they'd played with at Seabees just a few years earlier. In 1978, Blondie hit the big time, completely surprising everyone by releasing the number one disco hit, Heart of Glass. One of the biggest songs of the decade. Yeah. That was Blondie. It's great. Yeah. But Moans weren't getting into that. No, I mean, Heart of Glass is very disco and very of, of its time as well. Yeah. And then the Talking Heads charted that same year with their cover of Al Green's Take Me to the River, which was actually one of four cover versions released that year by Brian Ferry of Roxy Music, Levon Helm of the Band, and fucking Foghat. All right. They're fo the Foghat version's terrible. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it's awful. 
And while the original Talking Heads cover was on the first truly great Talking Heads album, more songs about building some food, the definitive version is without a doubt from the climax of my favorite concert film, Stop Making Sense. I'm a huge Talking Heads fan. Like, Stop Making Sense is, if you've never seen it, it's a concert film that starts with just David Byrne on an empty stage, and then the entire band slowly gets built around him. It's him just playing Psycho Killer on a fucking, uh, a Psycho Killer on an, an acoustic guitar, and then slowly, I, I think by the end of it, there's something like 14 people on stage. It's an achievement. It's beautiful. It, it's a, probably the best concert film ever fucking made. I know there's going to be a lot of pushback on that, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it, I think it's better than The Last Waltz, personally. Wow. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah it, b- better, than, better than Scorsese, I think. But there were no Jonathan Demme concert films in subsequent years for the Ramones. No future legendary directors looking to make their name. Instead, what was in the Ramones' future was someone whose heyday was already far in the past. The Ramones were about to enter the bizarre, dangerous world of Phil Spector. And to the letter, each Ramone would describe it as one of the worst experiences of their lives. And that's where we'll pick back up for the conclusion of our series on the Ramones. I want to hear about Bill Spector. (laughs) Well, we'll hear all about it next week. Yes, you guys will definitely hear all about it next week. I'm very excited. That's a really fun, crazy story. It's insane. It's one of my favorite rock and roll stories of all time. And there's plenty of other shit going on with the Ramones after Phil Spector. You know, you still got Stephen King in the future. You've still got the end of the fucking Ramones. I mean, there's this is definitely a band with an expiration date. That is true. I mean, I know we focus heavily on the, the first few years. I mean, we spent episodes on it and 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 they did but they did did go on to do uh 22 years of live music of recording albums of doing just of being the ramones yeah and that's a fucking great story in and of itself which we will get to on part four so thanks everybody for listening to no dogs in space this week our band this week oh yes speaking of which if you have a band or you're just a a guy in a bathtub making music (laughs) whatever whatever or a girl whatever you want to do you should send your submissions at no dogs in space at gmail.com that's it yeah and we'll we play a song at the end of the show this one is just a guy in a bathtub (laughs) i don't know i don't know where he makes his music but it goes by the name Metroid Mike. It's spelled M-E-T-R-O-Y-D-M-Y-K. It's chiptune. It's eight bit. Figure we go with something a little bit different, a little bit, uh, cool. yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. out of the, out of, out of the norm. But yeah, this, this is music. That this guy makes it with his Game Boy, with Game Boys. 
completely and totally with Game Boys. <laughs> wow. And <laughs> it, it's fucking yes. fantastic. Yes, it is. It's, it's so fucking good. So this is off of Metroid Mike's album, Heart of the Juggernaut. This is Galactica Noisica. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. See y'all. Yeah, thanks for listening. See y'all next week. are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll, like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply.